All right, as we, am I on there? Good. Make sure I'm trying to turn myself off. There we are. Uh, as we uh, have the, in the middle, basically, of this Advent Christmas season, uh, I'm preparing. Uh, I need to know some information from you. So there's Thanksgiving we just had in favorite foods of Thanksgiving. Do you have any favorite foods that you think of when you think of Christmas time? When you get to Christmas time, uh, food or drink, I should say to that, because some of you have to, yes, why? Cookies, Christmas cookies, lots of Christmas cookies. Same, got some Christmas cookies. What else we have? Wassel. Wassel. Uh, Wassel, that's pretty good. Is that, would you consider Wassel and cider? Sure. Same, okay, good. Just making, all right, mold oh, wine yeah. in there. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> some real excitement around some mold wine there, all right. Yes. Okay. Uh, hers is tamales. Okay. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, I guess for my family. Oh, any, oh, any of them. Okay. Yes. Uh, Mexican wedding cookies. Like Ooh. Pan de polvo. Was that what they? Yes. So good. They like melt in your mouth. Yeah. Like they just. Powdery, yes. Like in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Those with coffee. Those are so good with black coffee. Ooh, that sounds good. Oh, yeah. All right. Anybody else? Any Christmas? What? Any Korean Christmas traditional food? Kimchi. No. Kimchi. <laughs> Kimchi. <laughs> like year round. Christmas morning. You think so? <laughs> yes. Leave it for Santa Claus with the you know. It. How we prepare Kimchi for our Christmas party? Yes. There you go. <laughs> yeah. As we get into the season, isn't it amazing how our minds are connected to so much that's going on when we see. You know, in our house, Jill makes, we call these Grinch cookies. We know it's Christmas time when the green cookies show up. Yes. And the, here's the amazing part about it. They're simple, right? Most of the things are not the most complex things we ever, like, they're simple, but they connect us back into, like, memories. I remember the first Christmas that uh, we, uh, we had after we were married, and I stayed, and we stayed at my parents' house. And it was so weird because it was the first time that I had stayed back in the room that I was like a child, like my earliest Christmas memories were from. And so it was, I remember being so bizarre to hear the sounds in my house, but now as an adult sleeping in the room that I hadn't slept in since I was probably six or seven years old. And like remembering, it was like this flood of emotion that came over, right? It's like, I remember those Christmases. I remember not being able to sleep, like all the excitement of that. We get around food and uh, we begin to share those things. And it's just a great reminder to that. So we, as we come into the season, I, I do hope it is a time, like this Advent season we're in, uh, should like be a lot of, it, we can easily get filled with busyness and distraction, right? And, and not take a moment to like take in and receive those moments to sing. I love how Tom even caught like just to slow down and like sing these songs. We, we like, let's enjoy this. Like, let's savor this. Let's take in this moment. This is what the season is about that we remember and reflect on um, this way, this coming of a savior, the, the amazing uh, imagery of all of this season, right? Of a baby in a manger, of uh, a young mom coming and to have this child and to feel as, you know, immigrants and refugees to a degree in as they came into Bethlehem that night to, to come and have all, all that surrounded that. And so as we join into this season, again, it is so easy for us to just move day by day, to get our days filled with things, to keep moving to the next 
to just take a breath and rest and relax. And maybe it is, maybe the best thing you could do for yourself over these next few weeks is to make sure like you, you make some of those Mexican wedding cookies or you get them or you make sure, man, I'm gonna go get tamales, like I'm gonna get those tamales and make sure we have them. So that like, like those are things again, um, that can seem very like selfish or frivolous even, but I think they are things that help us remind us about the season and what the season is all about. It's about a savior. It is about taking in and savoring. It's about waiting. It's about taking our time and waiting on God. It's a slowing down. This, is, this, this time of year feels almost anything but a slowdown, anything but a time of waiting, right? It is much more about like, how quick can we get it? What, what all can I fill my days with? Because there's so many things that come into the play. Can you take a moment and just savor and enjoy the season that we're in? And so I want to encourage us in that. It's so easy, again, to just slide right in. Ways we've given you to do that just as a church. You can go to our Advent guide. There's a word for each week. We just lit the candle of joy this week. If you just meditate it on joy and finding joy, maybe even in some of the hardest situations, what would that look like? Remind yourselves of the scriptures that remind you about joy, that remind us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Like, Okay, yeah, I'm going to do that, even in this moment where it's not easy to rejoice, right? To celebrate and find joy in the midst of our life. And so that's what this season is about. It's about helping remind our hearts to put us back into that, um, that time where our hearts and minds are focused on Jesus. And so I'm going to encourage us in that. And so as those things come up this, this next few weeks, I hope that you, uh, and again, just take moments to savor the times that are there. Um, to see Christmas through the eyes, eyes of a young child, like how excited that is, right? I mean, you want to get into an interesting conversation, sit down with, you know, a Luke or a Sky, and like, what, what are you excited about? Like, they, they have all kinds of dreams and imaginations and thoughts about what Christmas will be like, right? Like, what will it come? Like, let's have some, like, enjoy that. Like, come to Jesus, even in the season, as a little child, expectant, hopeful, waiting, wondering in that. And so just an encouragement as we continue into our time of teaching today, um, just really felt the, the, the Lord's impressing on me to remind us of this season to not get so filled with plans and doing as opposed to really enjoying and being in this season. So I hope you do that over, as we continue on. Um, we're finishing up over this week and next week, the uh, chapters 11 and 12 of Acts. And we've been walking through Acts uh, since the summertime as a, even a reminder for us of, um, I think it's easy for us to look at the early church and go, oh, that's the church we should be, right? Like that's, that's the way the church is meant to be. Like that, it's almost even to some degree, um, uh, maybe, over, I don't know if over idolized, but certainly oversimplified of what the church should look like that we can compare what's happening now in 2022 with what was going on in the first century church, right? And say, oh, we should just be like that. And so there certainly are some things and aspects of the church that mark the church being the church, right? Being the body of Christ that we want to impress upon ourselves that we want to remember. But it's also, as we've looked through Acts, isn't a how-to to start a church, Right? Because um, I don't think any of us are like looking at, all right, so who's going to be the martyr so that we all go out so that the church can go out? Like, who, is, anybody, is anybody stepping up for that role? No, like none of us would look at this as like, oh, we've got to do it this way. It must happen like this. But what we do see over and over throughout Acts 
are these patterns and imagery that goes on. And I think the, even the focal point of today's message, I'll just tell you as we get into it, is being able to discern what is the Spirit calling me to do in my life? How is the Spirit leading and pressing in and doing? Because the Spirit works so differently, right? For each of us, our response to Him, how He speaks to us, how we hear the Spirit, how do we discern it? What do we do? And then how do we come into situations? So as we come into Acts chapter 11, we're seeing another switch. So we've kind of like, we've uh, done a little bit of like back and forth between uh, Paul's conversion in chapter 9 and seeing that as Saul um, turns from a persecutor of the church to one who is, is, is begin to speaking out and loving Jesus and like following the, and following this risen savior. Uh, and then it's transitioned back over to Peter. And over the last couple of weeks, we've looked at this picture of Peter bringing the gospel, the spirit coming and saying the gospel is for all people, including uh, these, these Gentiles, those non-Jewish believers. And so now we're, we're making the switch again. Luke is coming back into and saying, hey, let me, let me, let us, we're going to bring you back where we're going in the story. Okay. And so uh, in these, we get another little recap of what's gone on and then we're going to move on. So I just want you to hear today, uh, first, just hear these words, uh, from Acts chapter 11 verses 19 through 30. And just again, the, the next step of the church as the church continues to go out to, um, uh, the Gentiles and out to the world around them. It says in verse 19, it says, now there were scattered, uh, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who had, um, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenistic, uh, the Hellenist also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them turned to believe, uh, believed and turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When they came and they saw the grace of God, he uh, saw the grace of God. He was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast uh, and with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him uh, to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Let me pray for us and then continue on in the story. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for those who have helped uh, make this morning happening, for leading us and singing, for reminding us the call to worship, for these reminders of the Advent candles and this morning that you are here with us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak and use the words from your scriptures and the words from my heart um, to convey your truth, to remind us of your love for us, and to help us to recognize our need uh, to discern your Spirit's work in our life and what you're calling us to do, and then we might follow you with the same faith of these um, believers here in Antioch. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So as we think about and hear this story, this kind of recapping again, I love the beginning of this and how it starts, right? Um, it's a reminder, like we kind of maybe have forgotten as this has gone on a few years, how did we get to this spot? How did we get to where we're at in the story? And the story goes back to, again, a, uh, this, this is connecting us back to those who were uh, scattered and traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch after the stoning of Stephen, after uh, Saul's persecution of them. So I loved in the story, again, God's uh, provision in this, God's um, providence that he's coming into this, that we come back to the story. And Saul is in Tarsus. Um, he's, he has gone away. He's, we've not heard of him since he's left Jerusalem, but yet here he returned. He's returning to the story of these believers that have gone out because of the persecution he started with the stoning of Stephen. And so he now enters back into the story. I'm, I'm just thinking how amazing that would have been for those people who are fleeing because of this man. And then imagining as the story goes on, that this man is the one that's coming to help them grow in their faith in Jesus. What a, an amazing God we serve, right? Like that's, a, that's an amazing story if that's in a movie, that if you don't know that that's coming, right? And they're like, yeah, we've got this guy, you know, Barnabas has gone down to bring a guy to help us and train us. And then Saul walks in the door. <laughs> You're like, wait, this is the guy? <laughs> this is the guy he's chosen? But yet it is. And what God has been doing, and I'll just talk, we'll talk about this in a moment, but are patiently waiting, Right? Like Saul is a part of the story. He's not been doing, he's not been idle over these last few years that we've not heard from him. He's been at work. And so I want us to walk through this as we go, as we think through this. No one, again, as, as I even started this, there's not a, a blueprint for how to develop a gospel mission to the whole world, right? That's, that's in one way what Acts is, and it's also what Acts is not, right? It's not like this is exactly how it's going to, no one knew it, right? It's not a blueprint that God's, you know, Jesus sat down with his disciples and said, this is how it's going to work, right? This is how we're going to get the gospel from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Uh, right now, if you were to go plant a church, there's a lot about planning and how will you make this happen? And can I tell you, and if you've been a part of someone for any amount of time, none of it happens like the way we think it's going to happen, <laughs> right? In many ways, we've joked about it. We've reversed church planted for so many years, right? Like we started off with no trailer, no equipment, no anything. Most church plants started off with a big, huge trailer and lots of stuff and tons of setup and tons of tear. We had none of that. We were two years at uh, Cross Point enjoying life where we could walk in, turn some chairs around, take out some trash and we're done and, be, and, and walk out of there and be done. Like that was, oh, that was amazing. And then we moved to the, you know, we, like, so if we look at this and the plans, like none of our plans turn out exactly like we thought they would, right? So it wouldn't even be good if we had that plan. If I were to have sat down with our plan with some of you, I don't know that you would be here. Like we said, this is what it's going to look like. Over the next six years, this is what it's going to turn out to be, right? You'll be like, wait, what's going to happen? How's that going to work? I don't know, right? So we're not looking at this as like a perfect blueprint, a blueprint to this. The book of Acts more is opening the doors to us to peer inside the attempts, the failures and successes of these apostles and early believers, right? And I know what we mostly see are lots of their successes. We certainly have heard of their mess-ups, right? Um, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, like, definitely don't want to go down that path. Like, okay, I want to avoid uh, lying to God about my, what I'm going to give and what I'm going to do. I don't want to do that. Like, how do I, how do I, rec I don't want to end up like one of those guys. But most of what we see is God using ordinary people and doing amazing things, right? It's over and over and over again. 
What, what does God, the Spirit of God do when He leads missionaries to do a mission, right? And again, our, our, our temptation is to just like, we just imitate this, do this. Uh, but instead of imitating, what if we were to learn to discern as they did the Spirit's guidance of, uh, um, of us in our world as they did in their world? So mission is not only evangelizing and operating church services, right? It's not just making this happen. Mission involves um, catechizing new believers, like bringing them in and saying, this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Like, let me show you the pictures of what that looks like. The, the rhythms of life of a new believer, caring for the needs of others, working for justice and caring for all uh, creation, all wrapped up and participating in God's love for all people, right? And that love is what motivates us in relationships and which is on display in this passage. We see that coming out. And so today we're going to see four doors that are kind of opened up in this picture that give us, that reveal different dimensions of the mission. And we're going to look about growth, about uh, approval, official approval, and a door that leads us into instruction, and then about fellowship. So let's look at gospel growth. Luke wants us to read these chapters as, connect, as a connected report of the growth of the gospel mission. Luke is connecting us back in. We remember um, back in chapter 7 when, when Stephen is stoned and people go out. This seems like the detriment to the church, right? The church is scattered, dispersed. They call it the dispore. They're all over the place. How will this be the way that this works? There's no way that this could happen this way. This is not how the gospel spreads to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Like we've actually made it worse. This is going to end it, but that's not the case. We see over and over again throughout Acts, the, re the response to this is the progress towards the gospel going out. We see in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So those who went out, those who were scattered because of the persecution, they kept going. They didn't stop. Verse 25 of chapter 8. Now when they had testified and spoken of the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many, many villages of the Samaritans. So what did they do? They kept continuing to testify about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done for them and the power that had changed their life. Chapter 8, verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Right? So even Philip, as he's going out, he's like, I just keep going. And where I go, I share the good news of Jesus to the people that I come in contact with. Right? Chapter 9, verse 22 says this, But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that, he, that Jesus was the Christ. So Saul's conversion right, is a picture of that. It's continuing to go out. Later on in verse 31 of chapter 9, So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy the Spirit uh, the Holy Spirit it multiplied and then in chapter 11 verse 19 we just read now those who were scattered because of their persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews so on this path Luke pauses to recount these different vignettes of people and churches and in our passage he returns the attention to the Jewish church in Antioch where we take notice of the evangelistic believers from Cyprus and Serene, travel to Antioch to share the gospel to the Greeks, to the Gentiles, right? And so we're seeing at the same time God's providence as God's doing this in the life of Peter, bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. He's raising this up. So the Spirit is at work in multiple places at one time, right? Like it's going out and beginning to say, like, oh, wow, God really is doing this. It's not just uh, what's happening with Peter. He really is taking the gospel to all. 
This is a new breakthrough. And once again, this is a breakthrough not just about converting them to Judaism, like where they would need to be circumcised. It really is to a new faith in Jesus. The mission expansion um, uh, from the very beginning of the church, uh, uh, starts from the very beginning of the church and beats in, in every healthy church, right? I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church that um, had a heart for missions, both local and around the world. I can tell you of stories of missionaries from Africa. I remember a missionary that came to our church yearly um, who lost his wife uh, because of persecution of being faith, like in a tragic story. And, and, and continuing to see how the gospel is going out, right? Think, think of that for us. Like, how do we connect to what God is doing in other churches, the, the gospel going out to places like Safaki, a church just like us, Mosaica, that just met earlier today, celebrating Advent right now, in a season and time where a place where they are, like being a evangelistic Christian is like less than 1% of the population. And yet they're going out and they're caring for over, over 24 families that are from Ukraine, which is probably close to 80 people. Like meeting needs, caring for them. How does God, how does God do that? Even how does he connect our stories, right? We can tell those same stories about churches in Mexico. I got in a conversation with Antanasio this week. Many of you know him before he went to Mexico, where he came and and stayed with us. And we get to share the stories of the good news of the gospel going out down there. Their hope was when he moved down there that he could plant a church. Since he's been down there in the last five years, four churches have been planted. How, How does God do that? Even Antanasio, as we're talking, it's amazing to think through the stories of what God's doing there and even seeing the revitalization and restoration of his heart and soul. So much so like when I was on the call with him, I told him, I was like, you, you look different. Like you, he's like, God is doing something in me. He's freeing me from depression and all, kind, all these things were on me. He's like, what, what an amazing story. The gospel is going through, through all nations, right? We can tell stories about our connections now with Korea through Han Sol and Jun, and who knows where God will continue to lead us and connect us, even again as a small church. What does that look like to be the body of Christ and hear and see and think about the mission of God going out? And so as we think about this morning, it's a reminder of gospel growth. It's a gospel growth of salvation, right? We see this throughout the stories. So that ought to be a prayer for us. God, we want to see those gospel growth. We want to see salvation in our midst of our children, of those in our midst who aren't following you, of our neighbors and friends. But to know the gospel is going out all over the world. It's not just even limited to us, which is also freeing because it almost pulls the weight off of our shoulders. God's doing it. God, we just want to, jo- we just want to see and join in where you're, um, where you're at work. The next door it opens is this picture back into Jerusalem's approval of this, right? So there's a connection now. It's like, hey, how do we, we're, we are trying to, there is a need to connect what's going on to, to those disciples, those apostles who were with Jesus. How do we keep verifying this? How do we go out? How does a, a gospel movement grow out of this, right? So Jerusalem's approval of the mission work, right, in this moment punctuates that ev- the, the event in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, Paul's conversion in, in Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Cornelius through Peter in Acts chapter 11, we just talked about, as well as the growth of the church in Antioch. And what we learn in this book is that there will be uh, plenty of tension between Jerusalem's leaders, right? Those, those apostles in Jerusalem that have been there who've, who've never maybe even left some of the, the city, and those who are out on mission, uh, like Paul. 
but that story we'll, we'll get to at another time and studying this. But as we look at this, upon hearing the expansion of the gospel to uh, the Greeks, to the Hellenists in Antioch, the Jerusalem leaders send the peacemaking and encouraging Barnabas to evaluate. I love who they send there, right? What, is, what are the attributes we know? Barnabas is an encourager that says that about him in the scriptures, right? He's an encouraging brother. And I don't know about you, but if you think about that, maybe in your workplace, if, if, if the, uh, the uh, uh, headquarters is sending in somebody to check in and evaluate with you, what does that usually mean? We're going to tell you what you're not doing right, the things we need to fix, how to fix, you know, we're going to tell you how to do it the right way. Like basically what it would be like. I mean, I, I would feel the same if, if, if somebody from in the Redeemer Network or from SOMA was saying, hey, we're sending somebody down to talk with you. I'm like, oh, wait, what have I done wrong? Like, right? That's immediately what that's going to feel like. They're going to tell me how I'm not good at this and what we're not doing right. But what does Barnabas do when he comes there? Barnabas comes and then just like is with them. And he looks around rather than to begin to tell them, hey, you're not doing this right. You're not doing this right. He begins and brings encouragement. Uh, Barnabas leans in, uh, um, leans into this moment. His pastoral gift in this shines in this text where we hear these words from him that he saw what the grace of God had done and he was glad and, and he encouraged them. And that the description of Barnabas was that he was a good and faithful man full of the Holy Spirit. What would it look like if us as believers, when we come encounter with other believers, like our first response isn't to figure out what's wrong with what they're doing, but like, see, what is God doing there? Where is God at work? What's not what's wrong with it? And I think the early church could even learn from themselves in this moment, because what begins to happen is a lot of discord because you're not doing it right. And this is the way it should be. But I think in this moment, we get this beautiful picture of Barnabas coming in and just sensing God is at work here. I can't deny that. And he encourages them in that. Not, hey, here's a list of things you could do better. You're really not reading your Bible right. Your quiet time's not quite there. Your gathering needs some different stuff going in there. Need more lights or whatever, you know, whatever that is. Like, no, he comes in and is like, man, God is at work in here. How affirming is that? Our words of affirmation to encourage one another with, hey, I see God at work in you and here's how, where he's at. Right? We, we've talked about this a lot. The voices in our head and the voices we hear from others, mainly what we think other people are going to say. It's not even what people actually say to us, right? Are already condemning enough and hard enough on us. That's, that, that's not without actually hearing a word, right? What we think others are thinking about us and what we think about ourselves is already so harsh. If we were people that were encouragement like Barnabas, to say, I see God at work in you. To see it and notice it, to take a moment to rest. And again, I'll go back to this call, my call with Antanasio this week. It, it was very evident and the spirit was like, like pushing it up in me. You need to say something about his, how he looks because the, and it was, he was like, I, he told me even at the end of the call, at, then at the end of the call, I can't tell you how helpful that was for me to hear you're seeing a difference in me. It was a one hour conversation. And I walk out of that with just a sense of being able to see this one thing, God's at work, affirming that work in him. Right? And we could have sat and analyzed both of our churches and all the things that aren't right and all the things we need to fix. But what we did do is, what is God doing? And let's celebrate that. What if that was a lot more of our conversations? What, what do you see God doing? Asking that of each other, pointing it out in one another. I see God at work in you. I see your growth. What encouragement that would be. It's a huge lesson for us to learn. 
Again, what Luke is trying to show us is not an exact way to make disciples, but that we must stay dependent and reliant on the Holy Spirit. What is the Spirit saying? What is He calling me to do here? Discernment is critical. Okay, God, I see this happening. Uh, I'm in this situation. This is where I'm at. Help me understand it better, right? Like, like, give me eyes to see what you see, right? Help me understand that. We often think, um, um, we're often stuck on the question, what should I do, right? What do I need to do? When honestly, most of the time we know what to do. The question is, how, how should I do that? How, how are you already at work and where do I join in with it? Not what do I have to do in this moment? Again, Barnabas could have come in and said, hey, you guys got to fix some of this stuff because you're not doing it right. Rather, he's like, oh, wait, what can I do? I can come in with encouragement and I see you already at work here, God. Let me acknowledge that work happening. We often seek to control or dictate what we think, it, uh, how God should write the story, right? We often feel that way because most of us would not look at our story if we were to look back and go, this is the way I would have planned it. Not at all. But what we ought to move into is, God, where are you at work? Jeff Schulte, uh, the founder of Tin Man, says we've got we to take life on life's terms. We don't get to tell, no, this is not right. This is not the life I want. That's the life we get. It's life we're in. Right? So often we want to change it, manipulate No, no, it can't be this way. Right? And that's where we begin to fight again. And there's some part of it that we've got to go with what is happening. Now, do we need to fight against our sin? Like, can that easily turn into like, oh, we just, oh, it's just what happened. No, yes. There's some of that we can fall into like taking it off of our plate. Like we have no responsibility, but there is a part of us to go like, hey, this is life right now. God, help me deal with it as it is. Not wishing it was something different. How often do we spend our time just like wishing it was something different, right? Barnabas could have come to that church and go, man, this is great, but this is not really what we thought it was going to look like. So let's, let's make some changes rather than going, no, this is what God is doing. Let us join in with that. The next door to open is this picture of apostolic teaching, right? Barnabas was a networker and perceived a need. He knew the resolution, right? So he's like, I, we've got to fix the problem here. We need some teaching and equipping in this. Barnabas even recognizing, look, this is a key to us all. Barnabas wasn't the teacher. He wasn't the one called to even do that, right? How many of us, if we we're in Barnabas' situation, we're, we would feel maybe the need to assess the situation, fix all the problems, tell them what to do, give them all the things they need, and, it's, and then what do we just do? Put all the burden and all the weight all right back on us. And Barnabas recognizes, no, like the body is meant to be a family. It's meant for us to work together. We need somebody else that's good at that. Who's good at that? Oh, let me go get this guy. Let me go get Saul. And again, this is where it comes in the story. I can't imagine what it was like. Barnabas like, hey, I'll be back. I'm going to go get somebody because he's going to help us out. He's going to be the best, best person we can have for this job. And when he and Saul walk in the door, they're like, uh, Barnabas is crazy. Like, this has been a trap, right? Like, this, they're doing this. So he goes to get uh, Saul to join him as a teacher in Antioch. Uh, so Saul spent a year teaching in Antioch and instructing the disciples. Like what's happening here is also early in the life of Paul as a believer, right? We can assume the foundations that later became Galatians and Romans were laid there in Antioch, right? 
Any study of Paul's own writing show that he adjusted to each context in such a way that he was both faithful to the gospel and context sensitive. What he's learning there. And I think it's even he and Barnabas working together in that, right? He comes in and Barnabas isn't like, hey, fix all their problems. But hey, let's come into the context and deal with their situations as they need to deal with them. What are the issues that are arrived here? Like your friends, your neighbors each have their own unique context that the gospel needs to be shared in, right? So we don't just go out with a cookie cutter explanation of this is how you need the gospel. And it's the same way you need the gospel and the same way you need the gospel. No, we come to it with a realization like God can work in all those areas. God can use us in our experiences, right? I think that's also why Paul was brought there because his experiences would come and help them understand. Again, how much greater do those, do, do those coming to faith in Antioch, when they see Saul show up and begin to proclaim Jesus, know like the gospel has the power for everyone. For the Jew and for the Greek. Right? So we see this happening here. This is, the, as it said in the scripture, disciples of Jesus, both Jews and Hellenists are first labeled Christians in Antioch. Right? This makes it clear that this came from like the Roman leaders in the city for a way to describe this new set of believers, right? They, what do we do with them, right? How do we start labeling them? How do we place them, right? A new term was needed because the church at Antioch was comprised of both Jewish and Gentile believers, right? So this term literally means like partisans of Christ or like, or like ones like Christ. Little, Christian, little Christs. That's the picture of that reality. And so they're, it's showing how, uh, the Messiah, how Messiah soaked their beliefs and practices were. Author Bill Scheele, uh, on the basis of this text, asked an important question that I think is helpful for us uh, to ask. The question is, uh, often, when did you become a Christian? Um, but it means, what we ought to think about it, is when did your faith become noticeable enough that people thought you were a Christian? Like not maybe when like when was it when was it starting to work in you so much that people could recognize outwardly hey they there is something different about them they are living like Jesus see that was happening in Antioch both the the Gentile and the Jewish believers were following in a way that they both looked like acted like lived like Jesus and so they named them these little Christians for the idea that they were doing it. it was noticeable from the outside so that maybe is even a great question for us is is my faith noticeable enough to people that I am a believer like what is evident in my faith in the way I live that someone would attribute me to following Jesus and then the last thing that it opened up and showed was a fellowship expressed, right? A connection, right? And I hope this has happened over time in our church. Again, being lucky enough to have Antanasio come here before he went to Mexico has built some, at least some like, oh, I know who that is. Even if you don't necessarily haven't met, you've heard the name. You've, a lot of us have also met Irvin from Slovakia when he came. And I'll just tell you some good news. He's hoping to come back this spring and spend a couple of weeks with us um, uh, on, while he's on a sabbatical. Um, and so these opportunities of building relationship where, this, where God in his amazing providence and his amazing grace That's my fault. Got too excited there. All right. Thank you, Michael. I apologize. It, uh, God, God brings and gives us 
Uh, I think this term, uh, another, some of pastors share this with me, but it gives me more a love and affection for someone than the time that I've spent with them. Right? And I think that's what we're going to see in this moment right here, that the gospel of Christ bringing us together as family for us to be able to actually call each other brothers and sisters. Right? Like my affection for my sisters, even when I might be annoyed for them, is great. Right? I love them no matter what. They're my sisters. That's real. And I can say that same thing for brothers and sisters in Christ, even though I might not fully know them the same way I know my sisters. There's been something that's joined us together. And when I see a brother or sister, it's like it creates inside this fellowship, this connection that I want to know more of them, right? This next week, I get the chance to drive down to Houston and, and uh, pick up Carlos, and we're going to go up to Dallas, and we're going to hang out with the other Soma pastors in Texas. And like, again, my total time spent with Carlos uh, is the handful of times that he's preached here uh, in uh, for Soma and a few Zoom calls. But I feel like Carlos is as close as, as some of you are to me. And yet we've spent so little time together. And that's the beauty of the gospel inside that relationship of family is it, it can give us more relational connection than we actually have the time that we've really had. A love and a care for one another. And that's what's happening in these last verses of of, of chapter 11. It says the prophets traveled to Antioch and they, and this is the uh, second most significant center for the mission, right? Outside of Jerusalem, now we've got Antioch. And one of them, Agabus, um, his name, just in case you want to know, means grasshopper, um, uh, predicted an, an empire-wide famine that occurred under the emperor Claudius. So again, we're seeing God's hand at work, providence coming, sending a, prof, a prophet there to say, hey, this is coming, this is happening. And I think the purpose for Luke writing this and putting this in there is not so we'll be awed by the accurate predictions that occurred probably around 46 or 47 AD, but once again, that we see the fellowship of the churches, the connection of the churches there. When they hear that a famine is coming to Judea, even though they are not going to be affected by it in Antioch, what do they do? They recognize, hey, we've got to do something, Right. This word fellowship means uh, to share a common life in Christ as siblings with one another. Antioch Christians broke their piggy banks. They went out and sold those extra animals that they were keeping as savings. And they sent it along with Barnabas and Saul back to Jerusalem to say, hey, we want to we care for you guys in this time. You're, you're about to have a time of need and we want to do something about that. We want to join with you in the fellowship of the sufferings of the saints. That's what it's looking like. To say, you're going through a hard time. We want to be with you in that. How are we going to show you? We can't go there, but we're going to send our money there so that if you have needs, it'll be taken care of. The unselfishness of these Antioch believers was remarkable, right? Especially considering the most mature of them was only a few years old in the Lord by this point, right? Maybe just a couple years at the most. So it's not like they're like seasoned believers and they've all been to Jerusalem and those are friends that they spend a lot of time with. They're people they've never met. Some of them might not have any connection other than that some of them used to live in Jerusalem or used to know some of those people back there, but they've been dispersed out now. And so now we've got this mixture of people and they're sharing stories about it and saying, hey, we can actually help and care for them. Through Barnabas and Saul's ministry, God was training them quickly. And through these young Gentile Christians, expressions of love toward the Jewish church, the connection between God and these two people was completed. Again, it's showing, hey, there's, we love you and, and you're loving us. By They send Barnabas, they go and get Paul. Like, so there's this picture of this, like the church is really being the body of Christ. We really are united in Jesus. That's the only thing that can make sense to this. 
Nothing else does that. So Barnabas and Saul traveled back to Jerusalem, triumphantly returning with the evidence of God's power in people's lives. Again, more ordinary, average, everyday people coming encounter. They're, they're coming encounter with Jesus. And they, they're, I think of just the song we sang earlier, they, they, they're beholding Jesus. Oh, come let us behold him. Like, let, let's like, look at him. Let us understand him. Let us gaze upon him and what that did in their lives. Because of what Jesus has done, I want to give sacrificially so that brothers and sisters will have in their moment of need. I want to take care of others. All right, so what's our application for today? Right, what do we do with this? How do we take this? So as, as the partners journey back to Jerusalem, what was going through Saul's mind, right? I can't even imagine that as well. It's like he's heading back there. Like, what's this going to be like? Could he foresee the adventures that are ahead for him? The countless roads he would travel for the sake of Christ? Does he know what's about? Like he's basically been called up into duty, right? From here on out, we see Paul's story get really big. And we, I think I hear Peter one other time beyond here. So like Peter's been a big story in these first uh, 11 chapters. And now we're moved to see, about to see Paul and his conversion now going out in his missionary journeys, taking, taking precedence or coming to the forefront here. Is Paul going to realize the extent of his calling, the importance of his role as the one who would network the world um, with the highways of the gospel? Imagine, again, God's providence of time. The Rome, uh, Rome creating all these roads, connecting all these cities. Now Paul using that very infrastructure to bring the gospel to all parts of the world. Saul's story reminds us that whatever God pursues, he accomplishes. And what it, whomever God chooses, he uses. He may have chosen you to help build roads and bridges to those whom he has yet to touch. It might happen that in your time, and it might not happen in your time frame. It might not be something you even get to see, but that God may keep you on this side, waiting until the time is ripe where he did, like he did with Saul. But in whatever situation you may be in, you are on God's mind. And when your hour comes, when our hour comes, no force in the world will resist his power through you. Whatever God pursues, he accomplishes. We know this to be true, yet what do we often do? We wring our hands and we worry and we pace and we go, God, I don't see it happening. I don't know how it can happen. It doesn't make sense to me. Will the world crumble while his back is turned? Will a loved one's distress slip his notice? Will his plans for us, all of its good intentions, wither and blow away? Will his answer to our prayers get lost like a mislabeled leather in the mail? Have we ever wondered, can God really accomplish his purposes for me? If so, the question is, what area of your life do you usually prompt you in this situation to think like, man, can God really be in charge here? Can God really provide and give me everything I need? Will God complete his purposes? That's the question we ask ourselves so often. We're seeing over and over throughout the book of Acts, God doing that in ways that just astound everyone. So whatever God pursues, he accomplishes that. Think about how God, the gospel, has um, spread his gospel throughout the world in the book of Acts. He began it all with just a few ordinary men and women like us. And then listen to these verses from Ephesians 11, uh, Ephesians 1 and Philippians 6, or Philippians 1, to remind us of that. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things together according to the counsel of his will. 
Philippians 1, 6 says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's not, he's not brought you into relationship with him to just leave you there. He, he didn't bring the gospel to the Gentiles to just like get it there and then step away. Like he has something for us. Whatever his purposes are, whatever God pursues, he accomplishes. And then lastly, whomever he chooses, he uses. Whomever God chooses, he uses. I'll just encourage you with this. It is not always right away. Think of Paul and the story, right? He sat on the shelf basically for several years. But what, did he, what was he told, right? God chose Saul and at his conversion, what did he say? God said, he is a chosen instrument of mine. He told this to Ananias, to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. And then he leaves Jerusalem and we don't hear from him for a few years. What does that feel like, right? Have we felt like that? But like, God, I don't even know that you're using me. I don't even know that I'm, nothing's happening through me now. But the Lord didn't fully use Saul until years later when Barnabas came looking for him in Tarsus. If you don't already know that God is like, you're an ordinary person, but God wants to do extraordinary things through you, like that's still the reality. It's not changed. No circumstance in your life has changed that, right? Um, it doesn't mean you have to have more money to make that happen. Um, maybe you think, well, I don't even have any time to do that right now. You don't even have to have more time. God can use you right where you're at. In the midst of, like, again, I think back to the story we just came through with Cornelius, right? I don't know that Peter was thinking, you know what I have time for is to go, go down this path over here. But God met him right where he's at. He gave him the time, gave him the ability and got there. And God did a miraculous thing by bringing the good news to the Gentiles. That wasn't on Peter's agenda for the day. He was making a meal. <laughs> and God showed up and that's what happened. So the question you might think is, what do you think might be his purpose for you as you wait? Like God has a purpose for that. God is using the waiting. That's even more important in the seasons. Remember, we're in this season of waiting for the return of Christ. What is that? It's not useless. I know a couple years ago, we, one of the Advent things we used was um, the... Um, I was, was by Justin uh, Early, I think is the last guy's name. But one of the things he encouraged us to do was to, uh, in our waiting, not use our phones. And it was, I still remember that. Like how often when we, when, you know, anything stops, right? You know, this happens even with my new driver over here. Car stops. Sometimes we just got, what, what, what's happened on the phone since I last looked at it, right? How often, we just don't even know what to do with a moment where things aren't happening. Right? That's just a comment, like, what? go look, what? go look. What if in our waiting, we just said, God, where are you at? What are you doing right now? Give me eyes to see that. If you've stopped, if you're waiting for pick up food or waiting somewhere in a line, can you just start looking around at people? What if God just called you to pray for the people around you? God, you got anything for me to say today to anybody? Anybody needs encouragement? You could be the weird person, but uh, weird for the gospel is a whole different thing than like weird uh, for just being weird sake, right? But sometimes people just need an encourage, excuse me, encouraging word. Maybe you could be that person to give that word to, to maybe even start a conversation. 
So I just want to encourage you in this, recognize like our waiting, whatever it is, from the little moments of our daily waiting to the waiting of like, God, I feel like I'm in this holding pattern for a long time. I want out of it. Have you even voiced that to him? Maybe some of us are angry and hurt at God right now because we are waiting. God's not afraid of you to take on and saying like, I don't like it, God. I wish I knew something different. I'm sure Saul was frustrated. God, you said you were going to use me for this. And here I am. I'm just sitting here waiting. But just as we said, whoever God chooses, he uses. If God's called you, he's not called you to not use you. He's called you because you have a unique story and gifting that other people need to hear from you, your, your encounter with Jesus and how you encountered him and how he encountered you and how he met you in your life. Whomever or whatever God pursues, he accomplishes and whomever God chooses, he uses. This morning, I hope that with those two phrases and then the idea of just like discernment from the Holy Spirit, God, help me discern where are you at and what work you're in, right? That's, you go back to back in the day, experiencing God, a book was the, the whole focus of that is like recognize and look around you. God's already at work. All we need to do is recognize where is he already at work? What are you doing in this, God? So if a, a situation doesn't make sense, my first question ought to be, what are you doing here, God? What is this for? Help me see that. Help me experience that.